Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 13 as we continue on in our series from the life of David. <clears throat> the title of my message this morning is Four Broken Hearts. And I'm going to read the first four verses here of this chapter. We're going to be covering the events in the whole chapter, but I'm just going to read the first four verses here. In the course of time, Ammon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Ammon became so obsessed with his sister, Tamar, that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Ammon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Ammon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Ammon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my, brother's, my brother Absalom's sister. So if you just let these verses sink in, I want you to know that you have heard correctly. This is going to be a very tough story to walk through. Father, we thank you that you are the great edifier, you are the great encourager, you are the great revelator, and you're the great teacher. And we ask you, God, to quicken faith in our hearts this morning so that we can hear what your Spirit is saying to our hearts. We thank you for your eternal word, that it feeds us, that it speaks to our spirit. Would you do that today? In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at a story in which four hearts are broken. And we're picking up the story after David has committed adultery with Bathsheba, and after being confronted by Nathan the prophet, because David was in denial, David then comes clean about his affair and the subsequent murder of Bathsheba's husband. It's a horrible chapter in the life of David, and it ends with these words from the prophet Nathan. The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, the sword will never leave your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This is what the Lord says. Nathan is prophesying to David now. Behold, I'm going to raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and in open daylight. So as we progress through the book of 2 Samuel, over the next seven chapters, we're going to see how this prophecy came to pass. And today in chapter 13, we are looking at how the trouble begins in David's household. In this next um, slide here, I just want to show you the uh, family tree of David. I know this looks a little complicated, but I'm going to provide the voiceover here as you look at this slide. And this will help you have a mental picture of each of the person that I'm talking about as I go through this. Now, David had eight brothers. That's the top line there. And uh, I've highlighted in yellow the important people. So David was selected by the prophet Samuel out of the eight brothers. And um, then if you drop down to the next line, you will see that David had eight wives. Michael, Abigail, Ahinoam, Makah, Abital, Haggith, Eglah, had many concubines, and then he had Bathsheba. 
Bathsheba was his eighth wife. The first seven, he married them in Hebron when he was in the early years of his reign for seven and a half years. Altogether, David had 19 sons and only one daughter. He had 19 sons and one daughter. And you can see there in the highlight that two of his sons, or sorry, two of his wives, Ahinoam and Makkah, they respectively had Ammon, who we just read about, and Absalom. And then Absalom, right to the right there, the family tree, had his sister Tamar. And Tamar was David's only daughter. And I've also put in blue, just for context's sake, Joab, and he was the chief military general. He was the one in charge of all the armies. And as you can see, he was a nephew to David, or David was Joab's uncle. And then, of course, Bathsheba, whom Pastor John preached about last week, is the eighth wife. And of the 19 sons, it was Solomon that would succeed and take over the throne. The last highlights that I have there is above um, Ahinoam and Makkah, and that's uh, Jonadab, who, again, I just read about. He is the nephew of David and a cousin to Ammon. And then the last little blue is a second lady called Tamar, and that was the daughter of Absalom. So it's a very complicated family tree, but when we start talking about these different names, it can get sort of muddled in our heads. So this gives us a bit of a mental picture. So we can take this slide off. And the principal characters in this story revolve around the two brothers, Ammon and Absalom, and their sister, Tamar. And as we read in the opening verses, Ammon had this obsessive attraction with his sister. So much so that the Bible says he became frustrated to the point of illness and looked haggard morning after morning. That's why Jonadab, his cousin, said to him, Hey, dude, why, why do you look so sad? You're the king. You should be happy. But why do you look so haggard? And why are you so ill? Well, it turns out he's ill because of his obsessive lust for Tamar. What kind of sick person is this? The King James in verse 2 says that he was vexed. In other words, he wanted something, but he could not get to it. No, much he, no matter how much he wanted to have it, he could not lay hold of it. Ammon burned with such outrageous and carnal lust for his virgin sister, Tamar, that he became physically ill, thinking about not being able to have her and couldn't even sleep at night. In the NASB, it says that he fell into a depression. And the King James says he lost weight over it and became lean. Again, you can hardly get a, a clear picture of perversion that has overtaken a man. It's despicable. He wants to sleep with Tamar so badly, but he can't get to her. Now, the tradition of those days was that unmarried daughters were kept in seclusion from the company of men. No strangers, not even their relatives of the other sex, were permitted to see them without the presence of witnesses. Hence, Ammon's cousin, Jonadab, noticing his condition, says, What's up? Why are you frustrated? And then Ammon says, with no shame and no sense of moral revulsion, I'm in love with my sister. 
Now, at that point, you could stop the frame, stop the movie, and say, okay, Jonadab, you've got an opportunity to stop Ammon from this. You should have said to him, Ammon, are you mad? The law tells us this is strictly forbidden. Not only are you wanting to commit fornication, you're also wanting to commit incense, incest. Are you sick? Get a hold of yourself. But that's not what Jonadab did. The Bible says in verse 3 that Jonadab was shrewd and calculating. So instead of stopping Ammon, he probably is thinking that Ammon, as the oldest son, is going to be the next king, and this was an opportunity to get in his good graces so he could get a spot in Ammon's future administration. In other words, Jonadab was as sick and immoral as Ammon. So then Jonadab proposes a plan to Ammon. Hey, you know what? This is what you should do. Pretend that you're sick, then have your dad come, King David, and when he comes to check on you, tell him that you want your sister Tamar to make you some food. Then you'll have an opportunity to physically get close to her. Well, that's exactly what happened. Ammon pretended to be sick. David comes to see him. Ammon asks the king to have his sister Tamar make some special cakes for him. Another version, it says pastries or bread, but it's the idea that Tamar was making some sumptuous desserts for her brother. But Ammon, seeing everyone in his room, refuses to eat. So he tells everyone to leave, and at this point, he's finally alone with Tamar. And the Bible says in verses 11, 12, and 14, that when Tamar took the cakes to Ammon, his brother, to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You'll be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. She's appealing to her own disgrace. She's appealing to his reputation, but none of it works. Verse 14, it says, Ammon refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Ammon had set the trap, as Jonadab proposed, in our Tamar was violated. Now, as if this wasn't bad enough, Ammon gaslights her. He turns the situation around and tries to make it look like she is the one that started this whole thing, tries to make it as if she instigated. So he angrily shouts so that all his servants can hear, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. Again, as if to frame that she was the one that started this. So he completely humiliates her, and in verse 15, after he rapes her, the Bible says that Ammon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. What a contrast. We read in the beginning just his obsessive lust for her, and now having violated her, the Bible says that love turned into this intense hatred. Ammon had completely objectified his sister, and then after violating her, he now hated her. This is really bad stuff, really bad. And this is the first broken heart that we see in the story. Tamar's innocence is taken away. Her virginity is taken away. She's been raped. She's a victim of incest, and she's filled with shame. 
Verse 19 of this chapter says that she tore her ornamented robe as she was leaving and put ashes on her head and was going about weeping loudly. Can't even imagine. In those days, the daughters of the king wore embroidered and richly colored garments, exclusively sewn and designed for them. It was a symbol of their distinction and of their royal status. But now that symbol of her standing as the king's virgin daughter and only daughter, and she would have been one of the most eligible women in the country, was completely torn apart. Ammon had taken it all away in a moment of lustful hunger. Sin breaks hearts. We know the trauma that is carried by women after they've been violated. It can take years and decades to get healed, to sort through all the emotions and feelings and shame. How often has our sinful actions against someone produced hurt in people that lasts for years? Well, upon hearing what happened, Absalom, Tamar's older brother, speaks to his sister in a strangely calm manner. In verse 20, part A, Absalom says to his sisters, Be quiet for now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. What are you talking about? Don't take this thing to heart. Are you trying to minimize this? Why not? What kind of comfort is that? Absalom is consoling her. He seems to be placating her as to prevent a public scandal from breaking out. He seems more bent on doing damage control than really sitting with her. But in actuality, Absalom is seething with rage and is plotting to kill his brother as revenge. We know that Absalom truly loved his sister because after this happened, it wasn't the mom that took care of Tamar and it wasn't King David that took care of Tamar. It was her brother. Again, in verse 20, it says, Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's home as a desolate woman. Later, Tamar, I mean Absalom, after he gets married, names his only daughter after his sister. So there's two Tamars in the story. Two years later, Ammon acts on the oath that he made in his heart to kill Ammon under the guise of the annual sheep-sharing season. He invites all his brothers to the celebration, and then he has Ammon killed. Verse 28 and 29, it says that Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Ammon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Ammon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Ammon what Absalom had ordered. So think about this. Absalom nursed his grudge for two years. He must have been thinking during this time, how will I kill my brother? How will I do this deed? And as time goes on, he gets impatient. He wants to kill him, but he's also waiting on another important thing at the same time. He wants to see if his dad, the king, will do anything to punish Ammon. When David heard of this incident, verse 21 says, he was furious. 
The king was furious. So Absalom knew that his father was very angry with what Ammon did. But here's the incredible, incredibly sad thing. David did nothing. Absalom's patience was not rewarded with justice. His father did not make the wrong right. And this is the second broken heart in the story. Absalom so loved his sister, took her in, names his own daughter after her. And all he wants is for dad to make the situation right. But David doesn't. And so Absalom's heart is frustrated and confused and incredulous. Doesn't my dad care about his only daughter? What is he waiting for? This is not some small trifling thing that happened. His daughter, my sister, got raped. And so Absalom is not only broken for his sister, now he's angry over his dad's weakness. I have three daughters. I can't imagine... I would become a criminal if one of my girls got violated. I would just throw off all constraints and I would exact and express my deep anger. But how could King David sit there and do nothing? So Absalom was so frustrated. Why didn't dad correct the situation? Well, as commentators put it, David probably hesitated because he didn't want to cross Ammon who was his firstborn and therefore next in line to be king. And two, David was guilty of a similar sin in his adultery with Bathsheba. In other words, David had lost his moral authority. If he were to correct Ammon when he had committed a like sin, would have been to expose himself to criticisms of hypocrisy. Oh, you can commit adultery. You can cover it up. You can kill someone to conceal your secret sin. But now that your son has done it, you're calling him to task. You're going to put on this, I'm holier than thou, and you're going to punish him. And so David was wilting under these silent criticisms, and he lost his moral authority. David had put himself in a no-win situation. His sin with Bathsheba led to another sin, not correcting Ammon, which then led to a frustrated and broken heart, Absalom's. Absalom lost trust, lost his trust in his dad, and after two years, Absalom had to take matters into his own hands. So Absalom kills his older brother in a fully planned and premeditated fashion. Absalom was so set on getting revenge for Tamar, he didn't care if this murder plot meant that he had no recourse to flee to a city of refuge. The way that God set up the justice system in Israel is that across the country there would be six cities that were called cities of refuge. And if you committed a crime, particularly killing someone by accident, you could physically go to those cities and you could not be punished until a trial was had. But if you have committed a crime... And it was premeditated, you could not go to these cities, you could not seek sanctuary with them, you have no protection. So Absalom knew that because he premeditated this, there was absolutely no place that he could go after the event had happened. On top of this, the way justice worked 
in Israel in the Old Testament was that if someone was guilty, there was someone called the avenger of death. So if my wife was killed or my children was killed by someone and it was proven true, I would be the one to kill the perpetrator. I would be the avenger of death. In this case, Absalom having killed his brother Ammon, David would have been the avenger of death. And if Absalom was proven guilty, David would have had to kill his own son. This would have been an unspeakable, morally insane situation. That David faced the prospect of killing his own son for killing his other son. Yet none of this mattered to Absalom, that he might put his dad in this precarious situation. He was still going to kill his brother, and he did it. As a result, in verse 37 and 38, it says he flees to the king of Geshur. He knows he can't flee to the cities of refuge because they won't protect him, so he flees to the king of Geshur, which is at a, in a region north of Israel, outside the boundaries of the country. And that's where he seeks sanctuary. Now, who was the king of Geshur? His grandfather on his mother's side. And so the grandfather's thinking, my granddaughter has been raped. There's no protection for Absalom. Absolutely, I'm going to protect him. His own, her own father didn't do anything, so I'm definitely going to protect Absalom, my grandson. So Absalom stays with his grandfather for three years. He's glad. Absalom is glad that he's killed his brother, but it does nothing for his heart. His dad didn't do the right thing, and his sister is forever desolate, her future of a beautiful family taken away. Then we come to the third broken heart, and that's David himself. All this is happening before his very own eyes, son killing son. This goes against nature itself. This is fratricide, a brother on brother killing. Only a mother killing its baby ranks higher. And all this because of David's sin. He's the one that started trouble in his own house. He laid the foundation for this. This is on David. Sin doesn't break one heart, it breaks many hearts. And David is a gutted father. He should have disciplined Ammon, but he didn't. Absalom is then forced to do what dad should have done. Now dysfunction is roaring into the family. Kids are taking the responsibility of parents. And David is audience. He has a front row view of the wreckage that's of his own doing. Yet as brutal as Absalom killing Ammon was, the Bible says that David was comforted concerning Ammon's death. Verse 38. Now, it wasn't righteous. Ammon should not have stepped into his father's place or the court's place, but David knew that Ammon's sin was worthy of high punishment. And now David longed for Absalom after he fled to Geshur. Absalom is now himself put in an untenable, emotional, twisted position. He despises his dad for his weakness, but his dad is mourning and longing for him. 
Absalom wants his dad's love, but he's completely lost respect for him. This is a total mess. Sin is brutal. Then we come to the fourth broken heart in this story. The fourth person to have his heart broken is God. God's heart breaks over every person's heart that we have broken. God's heart breaks over every person's heart that we've broken. He was broken over Ammon because of how he violated Tamar. He was broken over David and how he neglected his son Absalom. And he was broken over the king and how David used Bathsheba. I asked you earlier, but I'll ask you again. Have you broken someone's heart because of your sin? Your mistake, your recklessness, your carelessness, your anger, your rage, your greed, your lying, your stealing, your unfaithfulness. I have. And I regret it every day of my life that I've broken some people's hearts. Sin is horrific because it damages and it ruins. It doesn't just hurt one person, it hurts many people down the line in a secondary and tertiary way. This is why God has to judge sin. Justice has to be had. Aren't you glad for justice? Aren't you glad that sick wrongs are going to be righted. Aren't you glad that those who commit crimes, whether they're heinous or small, will get their due? Next week in my hometown, all the world is going to be looking at the city of Minneapolis because George Floyd's trial is coming to a conclusion. Prosecution's made his case. Defense has made his case. Now the jury is going to go into consideration of the verdict that needs to be rendered. And the entire world the whole Black Lives Movement, the whole racial thing that triggered and erupted in the United States was because of this event in Minneapolis. And everyone wants justice. And what if they turn a verdict that says that the police officer, Derek Chauvin, is innocent or gets off light? It's going to create riots around the world. The trial actually is in a building, it's in the center of Minneapolis, where I used to work as a graduate student. I know exactly the courtrooms. I used to be in the control room, and I could close and open all the jails. I could open and close all the stairways. I could control all the HVAC stuff. That control room, I can't believe they gave, allowed a graduate student to have control of this entire building. At that time, it was the largest temperature-controlled atrium in the world. The building is so big, they have a four-lane street that goes underneath the building. And this is where the trial is being held. We want justice. In Numbers 35, it says that violence and bloodshed pollutes the land. And the only way for violence and bloodshed and that taint to be removed from the land is for the death of the polluter. In this case, it would have been the policeman, Derek Chauvin. Now, we don't know what the judgment will be, but it matters not in the sense that in the end, God's perfect justice will be meted out. 
Justice may not happen perfectly in this life, but wait until the end of the age when we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. God's perfect books, and don't you worry, everything will be settled properly. If someone got off scot-free for a crime, they will not with God. If someone got off too light, one-year probation versus when they should be in jail for 10 years, don't worry. God will top it off just right. If someone was punished for 10 years and it should have been one year, God will provide proper compensation. God knows how to make all the necessary corrections. Not one detail escapes him. You may think you can escape in this life, but not with God. God sees all. But the worst part of these sins is the after effects, the devastation that's left behind. The Tamars, the Absalons, and all the stuff that comes after that. But here's the thing about God when his heart is broken by what we do. Here's the thing about God when his heart is broken. He can take it. He can take it. I don't know how he does it, but he bounces back every single time. His heart is broken every day over and over by our actions. He has view of the entire human population, 7 billion plus people, and day in and day out, things are happening in the earth that are grievous to his heart, and his heart breaks. But he bounces back. He forgives. But he must avenge those that we have hurt, those that we have sinned against. He must judge our actions and the wrongs that we've committed against others. There's two ways that our wrongs are righted. First is that we need to repent and ask forgiveness from those whose hearts we've broken. We need to repent and ask forgiveness from those whose hearts we've broken. We need to man up or we need to woman up Show some courage and so show some character. Ammon did not apologize to Tamar. Are you kidding me? He actually said, said to himself, I hate her now more than I used to love her. He had no consciousness that he needed to go down and get on his knees and beg for forgiveness. He didn't do any of that. And so what happens? She's left in a wreckage. Absalom had no remorse for killing Ammon. No remorse. He broke the sixth commandment. He would have been taught by his dad, you don't do these things. No remorse, no regret. David did not ask forgiveness of Absalom for being an absent dad. And we're going to see an unbelievable unfurling of hurt and confusion in the next chapters of what goes on between Absalom and his father. But David never asked forgiveness. And they did so to their own hurt. Their lack of accountability is not the example that we want to follow. The second way that our wrongs are righted is that we need to accept God's sacrifice for ourselves. Accept God's sacrifice for you. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to pay for your sins and my sins. 
Instead of punishing you, he sent Jesus to the cross to pay for the brokenness that you've caused in other people's lives. That's why Jesus died. But the only way to activate the price he paid for you is to accept his sacrifice, his son, Jesus Christ, by turning your life over to him. That's our only solution. That's our only salvation. That's the only way your soul can be rescued. When you recognize how grievous your sins have been and your need for a Savior, then you can receive forgiveness from God and minister healing to others. Four hearts were broken in this story. But it's not just their story. It's our story as well. Sin breaks hearts. Let's surrender our lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Go back and make it right with those we've injured, no matter the cost. I don't care if you have to get on a plane and go someplace after COVID and say you're sorry so that we can stop the bleeding and start the healing. Jesus, this is such a hard story to work through. It's devastating in its scope. It's hard to even talk about some of these things that happened with the gross immorality. And yet, God, it's a, it's a picture of our condition that we too have done things that have hurt people deeply and created brokenness in other people. And do we just walk away lightly, not thinking about our actions and not taking accountability? Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're in our life to touch us and to move us to do the right thing. To give us a sorrow that leads to action and to open our hearts to you that we can receive a total cleansing for our sins. And if you want Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you just say, Jesus, come into my life right now. I'm so sorry for all the people that I've hurt and broken. Cleanse me now and use me to bring healing and no more destruction. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. These stories you can't even make up. The, the perversion that, that happens in this story is beyond so many of us in terms of how we could think of something like this. And as preachers, these stories make it so difficult for us to preach a sermon on. But there's a couple things that Rich brought out is first that even in the atrocities of these sins that Jesus is bigger than all of that. That Jesus takes what is our fault and turns it into his responsibility. That this is a moment where Jesus is saying my forgiveness is there for you regardless of what happens. That the justice that you deserve, I've taken on the cross. This is such a big thing because this is what the gospel is about, that even in the story that we just read, the sin that was committed, how 
disgusting how perverted that was that Jesus still says that I will take that justice on that I will bear that on the cross what you deserve I will bear but second is that when we see Jesus on the cross there's a responsibility for us even though Jesus has taken away the justice that has been deserved that even the sin that we've commit that rights need to may be made wrong uh, wrongs need to be made right that you have an opportunity here to make things right that you have an opportunity here to fix things what david failed to do what absalom tried to do all of these things is trying to make a wrong right and as rich said that there is there's going to be situations where justice doesn't seem like it's enough or situations where it's a wrong justice dealt towards people and Jesus at the end of the day God will see th- all of these things through but as a church as as Christians and as followers of Jesus Christ there's a responsibility for you to bring glory to who Jesus is and what Jesus did on that cross and that opportunity is for you to make the wrongs that you've done right And so take some time this week. Pray about it. There are some things that we may even have forgotten. Things that have happened so far in the past that we've probably um put out of our mind already. And it's not to to relive those moments, but it's to come to that place of I need to make this right because I know what Jesus did on the cross for me. And so I encourage you church to go and to to look at the wrongs that you've done and if there is an opportunity I'm not saying that every every everything is there is an opportunity and some of those things you just have to give grace and give it over to the Lord but if there is an opportunity go do the right thing and let God's grace fall upon you and let his 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 face shine upon you upon that so let's pray father god we just thank you lord that your grace pours out that your mercy flows that as we sit here and know that there are all of these things that are happening around the world all these atrocities that are happening that there 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 are crimes and sins that are are being played out every single day lord that we are grateful and thankful that Jesus died for all of those things. And Lord that even though sometimes we don't see justice, Lord that you are a God of justice. And we trust that your justice will always prevail. But Lord, we just ask also that you help us check our hearts. Lord, that we continue to give you glory in the actions that we do and the the the, the way that we live. So Father God, we just pray that you challenge us in this area challenge us to make wrongs right challenge us to give glory to who you are challenge us to see Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins and therefore i also also need to ask for the forgiveness of the sins that i have committed to others so lord we just come before you and we ask again for your grace and mercy to flow through our lives and for your healing to come for your kingdom to be no, be known. 
So Lord, we thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be blessed. We'll see you guys next week.